Welcome to SCMS and Cinema Journal present ACA Media. We are coming to you from one place. I am Christine Becker uh, at the University of Notre Dame, and also at the University of Notre Dame right now is... This is Michael Kackman. We are here in the command center at uh, Joint Command. We're kind of down in the bunker, sort of right. like Norman Schwarzkopf. We're in the, we're in the guts of uh, where the magic happens right. at Notre Dame with film and television. Both in one in one room. I, you know, I'm I'm kind of finding it a little tough to talk to you without Skype in between. I know. I'm used to you you like pixelating and so forth. So it's very strange to see your your face in full 3D. It's all very analog and material. Mm-hmm. But welcome. We have a terrific episode for you. What number is this? Uh, this is number eight. Wow. The Ocho. The big Ocho. Here we go. What have we got coming up? Well, we have a Cinema Journal Presents segment with a um, Bill Bill Kirkpatrick, ladies and gentlemen. You are going to hear Bill Kirkpatrick. We're not even kidding you. This isn't some sort of bait and switch. And it's not even an actor reading his lines or anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's just straight up Bill. It's raw, you know, full on Bill. Um, and he's talking to Hollis Griffin, actually, about the new In Focus section in Cinema Journal. So we've got that one. And then we've got a segment focusing on the Peabody Awards, which um, some of you might not know are very much tied to academia. So we're going to um, kind of investigate that uh, meshing together. It should be noted there that we have just the two segments. We've had two segments the past few episodes, and we felt like that worked pretty well. And also, with the semester coming up and people getting busy, we don't want the podcast to seem like homework, where you have to slog through. You know, No, no. We've got enough homework. We've got enough grading to do. So um, we're going to move forth with just two segments per episode, plus maybe an extra special thing at the end. We always have to have something extra special at the end. Um, But those will be our two segments. And um, like we said, we know things are going to get busy this semester. I presume... uh, Things are busy for you, Michael, as you settle into oh, your yeah. life. Oh yeah, I'm still, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to um, figure out where to park and where my glasses are and how things work. Um, but I had two classes already kicked off today, and you know, it's just like it's like falling off a horse. You know, you never forget how. I well, I've never fallen off a horse, but I if you do I it, would, you remember. I mean, <laughs> it's just really easy to do it twice. I suspect I would be good at it. Um, you know, and that's the thing I've taught at this university for this is I guess now going into my thirteenth year. Um, but the fall semester in particular is always a challenge because you feel like you've forgotten everything over summer, not just knowledge, but like how to teach and read words out loud mm-hmm. and things like that. Well, so, you just stand up and wave your arms around until people start looking at you funny, and then right move on. Okay, that sounds familiar. Um, but yeah, so I start tomorrow. I get an extra day of fun and frivolity. Very good. Well, let's dive right in then. Um, first up, we've got our Cinema Journal Presents segment. This features Bill Kirkpatrick talking with a voice to Dr. Hollis Griffin. This segment is tied to the Summer Issues in Focus section. This is the first issue from new editor uh, Will Brooker. And the title of the In Focus section is New Voices. The concept is that Will wanted to offer a platform to early career scholars, people who have already gotten great work done, um, but from whom we can expect even more in the coming years. Um, so you can read the In Focus section, get their thoughts and concerns about their places in media studies and the state of the discipline. And Hollis was the editor for that section. So Bill talks to him about putting that feature together and how he and the other authors approach issues like uh, the problems of higher education and changing expectations for advancement. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, this is Bill Kirkpatrick, and I'm here with Hollis Griffin. Hello. Hollis is Assistant Professor of Media Studies in the Department of Communication at Denison University in Ohio. So a colleague of mine here at Denison. And yes. Feeling very, very lucky to have him here. Oh, thank you. Anybody who would try to lure him away. He's a terrible human being, and a, <laughs> a horrible it's office mate. Toxic. Yes, toxic. toxic. Hollis is scholar of queer media cultures, and his work has appeared in Spectator, Popular Communication, The Velvet Light Trap, Television, New Media lots of other places. And this summer, he has been putting the finishing touches on his book, which is called Affective Convergences, Manufactured Feelings in Queer Media Cultures. Yes. Hollis, welcome to Acamedia. Thank you for having me. We are um, very glad to have you because of the Cinema Journal In Focus section that you just edited and released for the summer 2013 issue. Yes, yes. And uh, that's called New Voices. So you ask several junior scholars to reflect on where they stand as academics at this point in their career, where they're coming from intellectually, where they're going professionally, but also what challenges and joys they face at this moment in the discipline's history, in the history of uh, higher education and all the pressures that are being put on the university, the academic system on higher education. So I just wanted to start with that. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how the InFocus came together and sure. what you were trying to accomplish with it. Will Brooker approached me at SCMS um, about putting together this section, and he had an idea about having kind of personal reflective essays from scholars who were earlier in their early in their careers and having them hold forth about different pressures structuring junior faculty positions be it the decrease in tenure track appointments the rise in adjunct appointments the decrease in kind of the perks associated with being tenure track scholarships and um, fellowships and things like that and having them kind of not pontificate, but reflect personally about the role of mentorship in their careers, about the role of scholarship in their careers, and kind of worry about or think about where the field is going, where we are going and where we have been, to quote Joyce Carol Oates, um, and to have a kind of affective take on what it means to be in the academy at this particular moment in time, because it is, a, you know, the university is in a period of profound transition and tenure is in a period of profound transition and what scholarship looks like is in a period of profound transition. And I think that it's really easy to hold forth about what that means for the field, but it's kind of harder to get at the lived felt dimension of that in various ways. And that's what I wanted this, these essays to do. And I'm, I'm really happy with how they came out, actually. Yeah. And so what were some of those worries, some of those affective dimensions that emerged? And by the way, I should say um, your contributors for this were Lucy Bennett, Raquel Gay. Uh, Laura Horak, Joshua Neves, and Mahaley Sen, plus you wrote a piece yourself. Yes. So what were some of the, the things that emerged from that uh, across these various authors that you found particularly interesting? Particularly interesting. I think that we all, and I kind of knew this going into it, or I suspected, we all had various trials and tribulations on the job market. Um, it was kind of heartening to see other very smart, very capable people struggle with how to navigate that emotionally <laughs> and, you know, share it in a way that's professional. Um, and <laughs> Needless to say, um, I think that one of the other interesting things that came out was this real um, affection for objects insofar as I, somebody I write about bad objects a lot or I kind of see my work as being the intersection of high theory and the low object. 
And I think that it's really interesting. Like Raquel in her essay talks about her affection for showgirls. And I'm putting affection in quotes, we'll say, because um, she found it kind of critically interesting, but was embarrassed about it because it is such a low object. I think one of the other interesting things, and this was by design that came out of it, was an emphasis on globalization. Insofar as Laura is located in Sweden, Josh writes about China, Maheli writes about non-Western media, I think that the emphasis and the kind of overlap of concerns about globalization, transnational circulation, both of objects but also of scholarship, was something that came across in ways that I was really happy with. Yeah, one of your authors talked about how provincial U.S. reading lists are, and that I found that very provocative because suddenly I was saying, hmm, is, is yeah. my reading list provincial? Am I, you know, and I, we're all guilty, or I know a lot of us who are guilty of nichifying the non-Western day or week or unit. Yes. Um, of nichifying other concerns as well. It seems like one of the big challenges facing junior scholars right now is how do I integrate all that? And, and not just in, as a scholar, but also as a teacher, how do I bring all that stuff in in a way that does begins to try to do it justice. Yeah, try to do it justice. And I think that um, that's a concern that I would love to see the teaching committee take up in various ways. Um, because, you know, as an early career teacher, I find myself ghettoizing those kinds of concerns to, we'll have International Day. And yeah, which is not at all the kind of pedagogy that I was taught to embrace. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's what ends up happening. Um, and I think that Josh's essay does a particularly good job of questioning what it even means when we question the global. Like, what do we mean by this category global? Um, and so, you know, and I, I look, I'm excited about his work. Um, and it was one of the reasons why I asked him to participate, because those kinds of questions, you know, we assume that they're taking place on stable ground with a stable set of terms, and they're not necessarily. So um, it's one of those things that I think requires further engagement, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that with the object. You, know, mm -hmm. you mentioned Showgirls and your own work, which is on a lot of uh, sort of dreadful direct-to-video yes. uh, gay cinema, right? Yes. So one of the things that I liked about this, uh, this series of essays was that it wasn't just acknowledging the problems of the academic job market and the university system, but really making that connection to how does that affect our scholarship. So do you think it's gotten easier or harder to study the objects that you want to study, be they bad objects in so-called? I think that it has gotten harder to study objects that one feels passionate about, if only because the corporatization of the academy has put so much emphasis on marketability of things, be it marketability of scholarship, marketability of objects. There's a way in which it's really hard to hold forth about um, I write about failed sitcoms. I have a whole chapter in my book about sitcoms that were on the air for, you know, three or four episodes and then got canned. I try to talk about them as having some kind of value that's affective if it's not political or aesthetic. And I think that making those kinds of arguments in the academy at the contemporary moment is much harder because there is so much more of an emphasis on the bottom line that I think um, is new and has something to do with the neoliberalization of education in various ways that I think particularly Raquel's essay gets at that and Laura's essay gets at that pretty succinctly. 
Yeah, Laura talks about that whole issue of we need a book for tenure in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, obviously not everyone everywhere, but in a lot of, especially Research One, you have to have that book. And yet publishers are coming under this economic pressure and they need to be very selective in what projects they green light. Uh, so as a junior scholar emerging, what sort of considerations should they have about should Should we take the instrumentality of the university into account when we're choosing what, you know, when grad students are choosing what to write about for their seminar papers. Yeah, and so. I understand what you're saying. And I, um, I for one, I have a lot of misgivings about doing that because I don't think that, and I know scholarship is never pure and intellectual pursuits are never outside of market pursuits, et cetera, et cetera. These things are always bound up in one another. But there's something um, just to me really gross about taking into account the ways in which um, books sell um, and picking up scholarly pursuits. Like, I will write a book about X because X is fashionable. Or I will write a book about Y because Y is popular. Um, I worry about junior faculty feeling as if they have to do that. There's something that um, is simply anti-intellectual about that that um, worries me. And I feel like the kind of structuring tension of a lot of these essays are that the pressure is there to, to do those kinds of things. And I think that what you see people writing about in this in focus section is what it feels like to have scholarly pursuits amidst those kinds of pressures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that, I, that jumped out at me as, as a media historian was uh, Laura Horak and her essay. She kind of mounted a spirited defense of historical work in mm-hmm. media studies. Yes. And... So, you know, the job market itself goes through a lot of very trendy phases, right? So in the 1990s, everybody wanted their uh, globalization post-colonial scholar. And then in the 2000s, everybody wanted their new media digital technology scholar. And so as a media historian, I keep waiting for that moment to return. When Your time is coming. Your time yeah, is coming. when we're sexy again. When Josh is kind of talking about problematizing what the global is and means, I think that um, he's kind of not throwing shade on the fashionability of certain things, though maybe we'll say that for the sake of argument because it sounds sexy. Um, <laughs> but there's a way in which what how these terms signify at different moments um, is very much in flux, which is to say a global scholar in 1999 was writing about different things than a global scholar is in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so these things are kind of infinitely historical problems, I guess is what I want to say. Uh, the title of your own essay here was Lassoing a Unicorn. Can, yes. you, can you explain that metaphor yes. for these? Lassoing a Unicorn has to do with uh, my particular experience on the on the job market. It's what I how I refer to the job I have now because I had such a hard time finding permanent employment um, or potentially permanent employment. Um, I used to equate it to lassoing a mythical beast which is to say one doesn't run across unicorns, and if one ran across unicorns, one wouldn't be able to lasso one very easily. <laughs> so that's the experience. that was the lived, felt experience of finding a tenure-track job for me anyway. And how has that experience changed now your approach to actually doing the work? Um, I'm much less likely to, and I know this sounds corny and almost too expected. I won't look the gift horse in the mouth as much as I think I I was prone to in the Mm -hmm. past. Um, I'm more likely to kind of grin and bear it and roll with the punches, if only because I know what being on the other side is, where it looks like I'm going to move into my parents' basement. Um, So I just, I feel really, I feel really lucky. I feel really lucky 
um, that I get to teach for a living, that I get to think for a living, um, you know, and hopefully that gets to continue, I guess. So leaving aside the job market then yes. and the state of the university, from from the collective picture that's being painted by these essays, where do you see the tensions and the concerns and the direction of the discipline? I think I see the direction that there is no single direction of the discipline. I think that's one of the one of the beauties, we'll say, of this particular in focus is that there is no singular direction as much as it's kind of amorphous and nebulous and shooting off in multiple directions, um, which is good and which is as it should be. I think also that one of the major concerns that comes through in various ways, both in my essay, but also in Laura's essay, in Lucy's essay in various ways also, is the question of peer review and what constitutes um, what constitutes scholarship, what constitutes um, scholarly intervention, so to speak. I think that's one of those things that's very much on the table at the moment. And I think that that's kind of a structuring concern of we'll say immediate import in the field at this moment. Um, what constitutes scholarship? Is it a blog? Is it a journal article? When it's, when is which best things of that, things of that nature, I think are very much up in the air and I think kind of intellectually vital. So you make the point in your essay that the society for cinema and media studies, SCMS, which sponsors this podcast through cinema journal, um, not all of our listeners are SCMS members, but it is certainly one of, if not the most important media studies, film and media studies societies in North America, let's say. Um, you make the point in your essay that uh, SCMS needs to reimagine its role as an academic society, given especially the, uh, the historical moment in the university and then academia. So can you talk a little bit about, sure. even if you don't have specific answers about the kinds of questions that SCMS should be asking sure. itself about what is the role of, a, of an academic society at this And moment. when I wrote that, I imagined it felt like I was lobbing a rhetorical grenade in various ways um, because SCMS um, as an academic society has historically not intervened in various, we'll say, market functions of higher education. It doesn't get involved in tenure decisions. It doesn't get involved in departmental squabbles. It doesn't get involved in various things. And, you know, rightfully so, how could it? Um, but insofar as the political economy of higher education has shifted, morphed, become more expensive, um, has required that students shoulder more financial burden, um, the organization has done so much to meet the affective needs of its members in terms of um, mentorship programs, in terms of the website redesign that um, created a kind of interpersonal connection, the kind of profile pages. Um, and even, you know, thinking of podcasts like this as a way of connecting members, there needs to be a way for the society to intervene in material concerns because higher education is so very, very expensive um, and becoming more so as time goes on because the opportunities for funding are disparate um, among different institutions and individuals. I would like to see SCMS um, create some kind of fundraising function and maybe offer a postdoc or two or offer more conference funding, something that alleviated the financial burden, um, the day-to-day -day financial burden for students, grad students, new faculty. 
there's a way in which, you know, the organization has grown so much over the last couple of years. And it's not as big as ASA, American Studies Association, or ICA, the International Communication Association. But it is on the cusp of becoming a very, very large organization. And it seems as if this fundraising element is one of those things that separates us from the larger organizations. And it seems as if there's a way to imagine SCMS intervening in the material concerns of media studies, higher education, and still remaining critical of those practices, which is to say it's not great that the, the academy is corporatized. It's not great that it's so expensive, obviously, but there needs to be a way to imagine SCMS intervening in that mm-hmm. in some way that actually affected its members' lives day to day. Yeah, I know there's a donate button on the SEMS. There is. I wonder how often that gets clicked. You and me both. Yeah. <laughs> you and me both. And my thing is that that kind of like the institutional membership and the donations, rather than ask for cash strapped academics to donate $10 here and there, um, there seem to be larger flows of capital out in the world, mm-hmm. be it through Apple, be it through various corporate whatever, um, rather than, you know, ask. Joe film scholar Schmo mm-hmm. to donate $15 by clicking on donate. That seems but it, not even a drop in the bucket. It seems like condensation in the bucket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, of course, raises the irony that the corporatization of higher education will be addressed through the corporatization of the academic society. Yes, which is ironic, which and I, and I agree. It's very, very fraught with political concerns. But um, I, I write in the essay about this also, is there a way for SEMS to participate in those flows of capital, yet still remain critical of the practice of doing so? Um, and I think I would be really, I would be really keen on that. Yeah, reflecting on the, the junior scholars mm-hmm. who contributed to this section, what would you like to see SEMS be doing to kind of support them more, support their work, uh, to address some of the worries and the challenges that they that they face? I think I would like to see, um, in, in various ways SEMS does this at the conference, um, have writing workshops for new faculty. I know I'm writing right now and it's akin to pulling the teeth out of my head with my own fingers. And I would really, really benefit, I think, from being around people who were doing the same kind of work. And I know they exist and I know they're out there and I'm in touch with them via Facebook. But I think that if SEMS had some kind of organizational imperative to connect junior scholars who were doing the early career writing stuff, mm-hmm. be it, um, you know, workshops outside of conference time over the summer, be it um, workshops that met during the year, maybe something like that. I think that um, members like myself um, and even grad students who are at APD would really benefit from it. So, Thank you very much for your time. We thank you for having you me. Uh, thank you for having me. And again, thanks for an outstanding section that you put together. Hey, thanks. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bill, so much for that segment. Uh, I think Bill was fantastic in that, don't you? I think he's you? great. Yeah, it was a really fascinating conversation with Hollis. It was, and, and you know, that, that concern about how it is that we maintain all the different kinds of lines of continuity and um, sticking to our writing while we're doing all of the other things that we that fill our time it's a, well it's an ongoing challenge and I'm I'm really glad to to 
to see Hollis try to open up a conversation more about that. I just went through new faculty orientation here at, at Notre Dame, and apparently the associate provost here is rapidly becoming world famous for his binging versus chipping theory of academic writing. Binging versus chipping, you say? Well, so the, so the binger is somebody who saves up work and then tries to get it all taken care of in, in you know, a massive heroic swell foop versus the chipper, the person who kind of steadily chips away the, you know, I mean, it's, it's a tortoise and hare thing. Um, but he was he was preaching it. He really was. And, and he's got a, he makes a pretty strong case. Wow. Well, since my, a lot of my work now comes out online, am I a streamer? Is that what I am? I think that might be. That might be. And maybe that's what we actually have to aspire to be is streamers rather than <laughs> I don't know why. I'm not, I'm not sure what the opposite of a streamer is. <laughs> um, well, and speaking of uh, things coming out online, there's two things I wanted to mention tied in with uh, some of the things Hollis was discussing. First of all, um, one of the Synod Journal efforts to get more content online is tied in with InFocus. So each issue will have an in-media res week tied in with InFocus. So if you can't get enough of the topics Hollis was talking about and the authors from the InFocus section, uh, you can read more from them in the in-media res. Um, and if you go to Media Commons, Google Media Commons in Media Res, you'll find that. And that's, um, by the time this comes out, it will be the previous week, but you can read more. And there's some really great posts there um, from these early career scholars talking about their work. Um, the other thing to note, and this will be then a personal plug, but I think it, it definitely ties in with some of the information Hollis was talking about. It's kind of argument of the struggles of academia and where media studies fits within those struggles. So um, this is an initiative called Culture in Conversation uh, coming out of the University of Georgia. And each month they're going to present a conversation between two scholars with a moderator. Moderator asks a question and then basically back and forth email communication. Um, these two scholars discuss that. So I was um, very honored to be selected as one of the first conversation participants. It was myself and Kathleen Fitzpatrick tackling the question of... Um, the death of the humanities, but specifically media studies within that, when everyone's talking about the desiccation and the dying of humanities, oh, rarely no. are they talking about media studies. So um, Stefania Margatu was our moderator, and she came up with some really compelling questions about that. Um, so I just wanted to put that a plug out for that. That's going to be out September 1st, um, and you can go find it at cultureinconversation.wordpress.com um, or follow me on Twitter, CRS Becker, and, uh, you, you know, or uh, follow Cinema Journal on Twitter, at Cinema Journal, and you'll get links to all that great content. Excellent. Now we have... Another connection to Georgia in this episode, don't we? Yes, we do. Um, the next segment focuses on the Peabody Awards, and the Peabody Awards are housed at the University of Georgia, and they've always been led by academics. And so that's an intriguing meshing of academia and public culture. So I wanted to know more about how those two work together. And I got to sit down with um, former Peabody's director, Horace Newcomb, earlier. And then I also got a chance just a few weeks ago to sit down with the current director of the Peabody Awards to explore more about um, how awards for electronic media can come from um, an academic place. The George Foster Peabody Awards are the oldest awards given for excellence in electronic media, recognizing meritorious public service by radio and TV producers and organizations. Each year, a set of about 30 to 40 winners are culled from over 1,000 submissions uh, in a vetting process that's taken place since 1940, with television added to radio eligibility in 1948 and internet submissions included beginning in the late 1990s. 
The entries are adjudicated by a 16-member board, which includes critics, academics, and industry professionals. And only if the board members all come to a unanimous approving vote on an entry is that entry awarded a Peabody. Those awards are announced in the spring and a modest reading of winners that is streamed online, followed by a formal ceremony in New York a few months later. The winners cover all genres of electronic media output from local to national to international journalism and reaching into entertainment, sitcoms, dramas, specials, and so forth. This year's winners included Louie, Girls Switched at Birth, Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, 60 Minutes, NPR's coverage of Syria, a Univision report on the controversial Fast and Furious operation, a Phoenix station's investigative reporting on defective SUVs, a documentary from the Philippines on a family struggle with poverty, a Japanese children's series, the New York Times online snowfall feature, and the website SCOTUS blog. Most importantly, from this podcast's perspective, the Peabody's organization is housed within academia. Its home base is at the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia, and its directors have all been academics. Over the last 12 years, the Peabody Awards have been presided over by Dr. Horace Newcomb. He retired this summer, as you no doubt remember from an earlier Acamedia podcast where I interviewed him, and he was replaced by Jeffrey P. Jones, who was previously an associate professor at Old Dominion University and is known best for his work on popular culture, politics, and satire. In addition to the awards, the Peabody director also oversees a substantial archive built out of submissions. In fact, the Peabody's archive is the third largest repository of media materials in the U.S., behind only the Library of Congress and UCLA's film and TV collection. So I'm quite fascinated by this confluence of prestigious media awards with academia and a historical research mission, and I got the chance to talk about that with both the outgoing director, Horace Newcomb, and the new one, Jeff Jones, to ask them about the history and legacy of the Peabody's and what importance it might hold going forward in both the popular consciousness and in media studies. I first asked Horace Newcomb about how exactly the awards became tied to academia, and he gave me a historical recap. The National Association of Broadcasters in the late 30s approached the Pulitzer Committee at Columbia and asked if they could have a radio award, and they did not want to do that, still print at that time exclusively. So a committee was established to create an award, and that com- the chair of that committee was a man named Lambden Kay. He was the general manager of WSB Radio. Mr. Kay's continuity writer at that point was a young woman named Leslie Smithgall, who had just graduated from the Grady Journalism School which is now the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication. Lessie introduced Mr. Kay to John Drury, the dean of the journalism school. Uh, and the two of them began to plan the award. It went through the Board of Regents and was approved in 1940. Uh, so there's that part of it. It was founded here at the university, modeled in some ways after the Pulitzer to protect it from the industry. It is not an industry award. It is not a peer group award. I refer to the Peabody as a Citizen's Award. I followed up with Jeffrey Jones on what value he sees in having awards tied in with an academic mission. Literally, by putting it within a university setting, you are putting it one step removed from the industry. And I think that's very important for the award and what it signifies. But I also think that academics are in the business of trying to measure in in communication and media the value of media. How does it contribute to society or or detract from in various ways? And and these are fundamental questions that have always existed in communication. And to have an academic uh, or have that related to the academy, I think, uh, is important because we shape the conversation in ways that journalists 
may not have certain types of approaches. So gender is one, for instance, that the Academy has led that conversation in a lot of ways, especially in regards to media representation. And so the Peabody's are a 16-member board, 15 members and the director. And typically the board has about three academics on there and the director is one. And um, I think the what academics bring to the discussion is often helpful. Uh, it's a critical framework. It's informed by history and theory in ways that, uh, say, television critics or journalists or even people in the industry are not necessarily articulating. And so being an academic and on the board and directing the board, I think, is a, is a good thing. It, it adds to the quality that makes the Peabody's distinctive and rich. As Jones says, academics then play a part in deciding who deserves a Peabody, who should be recognizing this conversation about the value of media text. So that raises a question. What are the standards for earning a Peabody? I first posed that question to Newcomb. The award is meant to be meaningful. Uh, it, uh, it says that these works are outstanding. They are stronger, better uh, than most. Uh, we say we have one criterion, which is excellence, and defining excellence on its own terms for many different kinds of programming. When I then asked Jones about the Peabody standards, he expanded on one area in particular that Newcomb had alluded to in his answer about the history of the award. He raised the notion of citizenship. I think the Peabody Awards also, are, uh, their job is to look at the ways in which media inform our citizenship. And that was why I was attracted to the position. And when I, what I mean by that is citizenship is often considered to be a political term. And, and I don't think it is at all. I think it's a way in which we see a commonality, either in a national context or an international context, of other fellow human beings. And often around the, the joys of being human or the suffering that other humans uh, endure. And the Peabody's seem to me to celebrate uh, humanity. And that can be a negative thing, meaning that the journalistic or documentary or even the entertainment things that point out suffering uh, is present. Uh, that's, that's what the Peabody Awards are, are highlighting. Uh, and I think that that takes us out of a, a citizenship that's uh, locked into politics. Politics is often a divisive thing. It's often about division, ideological divisions and divisions over resources. And I think the Peabody's highlight media materials that uh, celebrate a, a, a humanity and celebrate a citizenship that expands beyond that. And that's what's exciting about it. And it's why I wanted to be a part of it. Jones also expressed to me that he appreciated how the Peabody's honor public service, not just in the traditional sense of journalism, but also viewing entertainment as a public service. Jones sees the distinction between journalism and entertainment as an artificial one, and so he really appreciates that what the Peabody's honor overall is compelling storytelling, no matter the genre or format. I, I think that, that what the Peabody's do very clearly is to show that it doesn't matter whether it's a news text a documentary text, an entertainment text, or even the platform. It can be radio, which it was solely before television was born. It can be television, it can be the web. We may eventually move into where we're looking at apps or gaming. But what the key is is storytelling. How 
Are there meaningful stories being told that, again, either clarify or complicate or show a commonality in humanity? And it doesn't matter whether what genre, what platform, is, is, that, uh, is that what's going on within them? So I'm really attracted to the Peabody's because it's not just a journalism award. It's not just documentary, but that instead it does highlight those kind of uh, features and uh, and I think that's what makes the award distinctive and I think that's what it makes the award strong. The Peabody organization is also about more than just awards. Academics, in fact, should be even more interested in the Peabody archive. Newcomb gave me an overview of the holdings. We now have probably uh, 70,000 pieces of radio and television and far more than that in terms of, uh, those are titles, in terms of pieces we have far more than that because we have uh, in some cases an entire run of a television show for the previous year. Uh, We have documentaries that uh, will never be shown again and it goes back to the 1940s. One of the things that people don't often know about is that we have a massive paper record collection. Uh, People submit, uh, in addition to the entry form, they will often submit uh, newspaper clips that support their story. They will submit reviews. Uh, They will submit artifacts. Uh, We have a big exhibit up now uh, of Simpsons artifacts that have been sent in. They submit every year. And we have uh, Simpsons gumball machines, lunchboxes, toilet paper, t-shirts, all of those things. And it's a beautiful exhibit right now. But we go, those go back to the 40s when people made hand-lettered scrapbooks describing what they had submitted. Uh, it's, it, it is a collection like no other. And Jones explained why this material can be vital to academics in many fields, but especially media studies. So the Peabody's don't just house, thir- the archives don't just house 35 winners. They house up to 1,000 submissions a year for the last 72 years. And so... I think part of my mission as the new director will be to spread the word that uh, we're the third largest repository of such media materials and that we house America's cultural history for the last 72 years. So anyone, whether it's sociologists or media anthropologists or TV study scholars or anyone interested in America's story uh, needs to realize that here's this vast reservoir Uh, that they can have access to and should be informed with. I I think scholars, we have to be very efficient with our time and we have to be dogged in getting out our work and and being very productive. But what that often amounts to is that we're often very ahistorical in our knowledge and understanding of what has transpired before we uh, are examining the text that we often do. And so I hope my job as a new director will be constantly facilitating uh, access through grants, travel grants, or through uh, various research symposia of calling attention to the archives, making it more available, uh, trying to create conditions for either media historians or postdocs to work with the archive, but really help junior scholars realize that Their work is incomplete unless they understand the forms that are built into and precede that which they're studying. And the best way to do that is spend some time with the archives. And as a final thought, Jones pledged to work toward giving the Peabody organization a bigger presence in cultural conversations and in academia. 
Clearly, the Peabody's is an underutilized resource, and uh, that's not a criticism as much as I think it needs to be pushed more into the national consciousness. The more that we can make the Peabody's uh, and its archive a part of the conversation about best media practices, that will serve media better, but it will also serve our citizenship better. And I think we can be more involved in proselytizing, if you will, that media is not just trash, uh, that there's a lot going on that's good that does inform our citizenship, and here's how and here's why. So I very much want to be a part of that conversation of pushing the awards forward. I also think that there's more to recognition of winners than handing them a statuette. That to recognize winners is to say, to call attention to their work. And we need to do a better job via social media, via legacy media, of pointing to, here are the winners, here's what you should be watching, (laughs) here's why you should watch, and here's the kind of conversation that they're promoting and the ways in which it can shape our conversation about these things. Too long in legacy media, we have waited for journalists to pick up in magazine and print or in television to pick up on these issues and highlight them and try to make them prominent enough where then either cultural intellectuals or politicians will pick them up and deal with them. I think the Peabody's have a role to play in saying, these conversations are here. If you watch these media materials, you listen to them, they're highlighting things we should talk about. And so in an era of convergent media and horizontal communication, we can have these conversations outside those traditional channels. We should be having them. These media practitioners have done a good job of highlighting the issues. Now let's talk about it. You know, it may seem weird to say we want to raise the profile of the Peabody's when last night on the newsroom, uh, Will McAvoy mentions, uh, the the actor on the newsroom mentions the Peabody's or Stephen Colbert. But I think it in some ways is kind of a hidden treasure. So that's that's part of my job is to, to make the Peabody's more part of the conversation. Great interviews, Chris. You know, the Peabody Archive is just a fantastic collection of material. I remember when I was helping work on the very first Flow conference, and we were looking for screening materials, and we and the, the Peabody archivist was enormously helpful in helping us find some things, including some things from the NET materials from the late 60s that had been lingering there for decades without anybody looking at them. And they were very gracious about getting copies to us and helping to facilitate a screening. It was just a really, really terrific resource. Mm. And especially all the talk these days about, you know, cultural legitimation and so forth. I'm fascinated at the idea they have all this material that producers themselves have submitted to sort of argue that they're materials are worth looking at and there's i mean there's a dissertation topic waiting to happen you know or an article or or a book yeah yeah, on uh on the peabody awards and and uh uh you know cultural history essentially it really is a terrific resource and we wish them the best of luck as they as they move forward yeah i look forward to seeing that happen so we're all set here. Uh, we have our last little bit of chat where we like to talk about what we've been watching. Um, what are you watching lately? Pretty much the only thing I'm uh, watching, because we're in the late summer, you know, we haven't had the new fall shows yet, and summer is winding down. But, um, of course, the one thing I'm obsessed with, uh, Breaking Bad. The oh, final what's that? episodes of Breaking Bad. Breaking 
Breaking, what's that? It's a children's show. Oh, wow. Oh, you know, this show, this is an interesting show because um, now I know the one you're talking about. Okay. Um, a friend of mine who's in the industry, who's an editor, actually gave me some in- interesting uh, background story. And I don't really watch the show. So it's something about a, um, a f- high school teacher and his wife. And then, um, I mean, it sounds like all really very interesting, fascinating stuff. But he actually told me the way it ends. Oh, I, I mean, it really? I, yeah. Well, do you see what happens is the. But then what's even more remarkable. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, now again, I haven't ever seen the show, so I don't, I don't really know quite what that means. But it, but it certainly sounds, you know, plausible. Twitter is going to lose its mind when that final episode airs then. Well, it would be very interesting to see what happens. And I guess one of these days I ought to watch that show. Uh, might be a good idea. Yeah. I hope you've all enjoyed this episode. Uh, and I also hope that you have finished up those SCMS applications that were due, the proposals. Good luck to everyone as we wait I've heard now that it for... really helps to send chocolate to Oklahoma. Does it really? Yeah, that's what I, that's what I hear. I don't know Address that's to Jane Dye. Yeah. All right. Um, so we are all set here. We would like to remind you of some ways to talk to us. If you have any feedback on the episode or suggestions for future segments, you can reach us. Uh, we have a Facebook group, uh, Facebook and ACA Media, ACA hyphen media. And we have a Twitter feed that is uh, at ACA underscore media. You can also uh, reach us via our personal Twitter. So I am at CRS Becker. And I am at M. Kackman. And there's Bill Kirkpatrick is at M.W. Kirk P. I believe that's right. Okay. And of course, there's our website at www.aca-media.org. And once again, Bill always puts up uh, fantastic things on that. And also, you, you uh, those who are not part of our Facebook group or Twitter did not get to see the fantastic picture we uh, that Bill posted for us. So you from, won't even... From the command post. Right. Yeah, for, yeah exactly. We're, we're in kind of deep in thought preparing for this episode you've just heard. So We do a lot of retreats. To, to really focus on our content. Right. So check out the Facebook uh, group or the Twitter feed to, to catch up with that. Acamedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame and with the support of the University of Notre Dame Department of Film, Television, and Theater and the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we are also sponsored by the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And we would like to thank, as always, our producers, Bill Kirkpatrick, the the sultry tones uh, of, of Bill Kirkpatrick, and Todd Thompson, our technical producer at Dharma Bomb Studios. We'd also like to thank those who generously gave their time to speak to us in this episode, Hollis Griffin, Jeffrey Jones, and Horace Newcomb. All right, thanks all for listening, and good luck with the uh, early weeks of class. Giddy up. Giddy up.